The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the new 13th Doctor story, War of the Suntarans. I'm Father Corey Stika, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. How's it going, Jimmy? Howdy, Father Corey. Remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us at Twitter at SQPN. And of course, leave us comments to let us know what you think and what your feedback is. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Uh, would you give us a feedback or recap there, Jimmy? Sure. So, spoilers ahoy. Here we go. Last time on Doctor Who, the Doctor, Dan, Yaz, and the TARDIS were sucked into the universe-ending Flux. It turns out uh, that since the Suntarans knew the Flux was coming, they snuck onto Earth just before the Lupari created a shield around it. Beginning with a base in Liverpool, they started spreading out over Earth and planning a temporal offensive against periods in Earth's history so they could take it over and make it a Suntaran base throughout all of its history. The pilot project for that incursion is in 1855 in the Crimean War, and that's where the Doctor, Yaz, Dan, and the TARDIS have landed after they came into contact with the Flux at the end of last episode. Dan and Yaz are mysteriously transported away from the Doctor, which she attributes to the mix of temporal vortex energy plus the Flux. Stuck in 1855, because the TARDIS now has no doors, the Doctor seeks to get the Suntarans out of the Crimean War. The commander of the British forces there, Lieutenant General Logan, resists her efforts, but seems to come around after his men suffer a devastating loss in battle. General Logan and medical worker Mary Seacole then help the Doctor to force a Suntaran retreat by draining their ships of needed supplies while the Suntarans are in their rest cycle. Although the Centaurans are retreating, General Logan blows them up anyway in revenge for all the men he's lost. Meanwhile, Dan has been transported back to 21st century Liverpool, where he meets his parents, learns about the Centauran base, and infiltrates it. He and Carvanista use one Centauran ship to destroy the others, thus destroying their invasion force. Also, meanwhile, Yaz and Vender have been transported to the to the Temple of Atropos on the planet Time, which is instrumental to the proper flow of time in the universe. This function is controlled by a small group of people known as the Mori, two of whom have died. Swarm, his sister Azure, and a Thanos clone named Passenger show up, and they clearly have a backstory with the planet Time. Swarm remotely hijacks the ailing TARDIS to bring the Doctor and Dan to himself, and he reveals that he's forced Yaz and Vender to replace two of the Mori as a temporary fix. He tells the Doctor uh, that when he snaps his fingers, all the power of time will flow through them, killing them instantly or at least in a matter of seconds. He then snaps his fingers, giving us our second cliffhanger, the end. Yeah, so a lot going on again in this episode. It, it's uh, some of the, the threads that we pointed out last episode are starting to come together. And of course, you know, we got the, the Santarans are kind of the big one, but we've got three different time locations. We got the Crimean, we've got Liverpool, and then we've got the, the Temple of Atropos, which we've just learned about for the first time. Um, and we have... TARDIS and companion separation, like within five minutes of the beginning of the episode. 
It's pretty yeah. impressive we lose both. I, I like the way the TARDIS keeps the Doctor out. Instead of locking the door, just gets rid of the door altogether. Yeah, last time we had too many doors on the inside. Now we have no doors on the outside. Well, it kind of makes it hard to get in if the, dar- if the their door doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then I kind of I had got a chuckle of the companions fading away because all I could think of was Back to the Future, where his his future is being changed and his and he was starting to fade away. He's losing his hand and fading away. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But at least at least uh, he didn't have a picture. Uh, at least the doctor didn't have a picture of her companions with them fading away from the head down. Exactly. Exactly. So probably the best thing to do is just let's pick one of the locations and start, and we'll kind of go through all three. You know. So of course, best one to start one is eighteen fifty five Crimea. You know, and, uh-huh. and of course, it's kind of interesting. Okay, this is kind of a historical, but it's a historical that the Santarans are there instead of Russia and China. Neither of those uh-huh. countries exist anymore, apparently. Yeah, people may not be familiar with where Crimea is. It's an area around the Black Sea, so that's why the doctor keeps mentioning Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's something that's been in recent history because Russia has been reasserting control over it uh, via, via versus Ukraine. Um, during the during the Soviet Union time, it was actually considered part of the Ukraine. But now after the Soviet Union broke up, Russia is saying that it's part of it again. So it's actually something that's been in recent history for some conflict. Yeah, as well. I I thought that in the uh, in this sequence, the the graphics were really good. We have uh, we have a, a big CGI battle between Santarans and British troops. And that's that was that was pretty well rendered. I liked that. I liked also the way the Santarans are being played again for drama instead of comedy. Um, and and they were, I thought, effective as um, as as villains with the with the exception of one sequence where they turn in, in 21st century Liverpool, where they turn into stormtroopers and can't hit Dan with their weapons for anything. But in general, I thought they were well played as villains. There was some nice comedy mixed in with that as well. And it was great to see Dan Starkey again. Yes. Dan Starkey is has played a bunch of Santarans in New Who, and this time he's playing a, a soldier named Zvild, but you're probably more familiar with him for playing the comedic character Strax. Right. I was actually kind of half hoping that they were going to say that his name was Strax, you know, that it, this was Strax in an alternate universe or something like that, but... Uh-huh. Uh, or one of his clone brothers, because yeah. they're all clones. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually kind of interesting, is we're starting to see two different strains of the, the, the Santaran clones. They're, they're played by different actors, different voices. Uh, and so the commander, uh, Skak, is one strain, and then Svild is another one that's more like, like Strax. So it's kind of interesting that we're seeing that there there's different strains. Usually you just see one strain that's repeated over and over, but uh, mm-hmm. starting to see that a little bit different. Um, one one thing I thought you might find interesting, Father, is they name check uh, Lynx. Yes, who was who was the very first Centauran we ever met back in the John Pertwee Third Doctor uh, serial, The Time Warrior. Yes, yeah, yeah. The uh, he claimed the, the uh, Commander Stacks claimed that uh, Stack claimed that uh, Lynx had claimed Earth as Santar property, and so he was just recovering that, and that's why yeah. he was there. They were there on Earth to to do that. Uh, so that was kind of nice uh, call back way back to the 70s. 
Something I was confused by with regard to Lynx was Lynx died or appeared to die in the Time Warrior. Mm-hmm. He was sh- he was shot by an arrow and then his ship blew up. Uh, but nevertheless, at the end of this one, when Carvinista and Dan are blowing up the the ships in 21st century Liverpool, right. you you hear a voiceover. Now we see like Santarans running around with their helmets on, and one of them runs up to the camera and with the helmet on. But then you hear. Uh, a voice say, this is Commander Lynx to all. The fleet is under attack. Hmm. And so that could imply that Lynx survived his uh, his time warrior, and that may be him running up to the camera. Yeah, I, I missed I missed that, that voiceover. I heard the part about the, the fleet's under attack, but I missed that it was Lynx. So it could be. It could be, or this could be, again, you know, we're talking about alternate times, and time, right. is, time is kind of in flux. No pun intended. Um, and you can blame any inconsistencies on the time war. So, time, yeah. Well, now, now we've got the time war and flux. So now we've got two things that you can blame any inconsistencies. Um, mm-hmm. um, going back to, to Crimea, uh, yeah. Mrs. Seapole is a very interesting character. She's actually a historical figure uh, based right. on a historical figure who was a contemporary of Florence Nightingale, who's a name that a lot of people might might remember as yeah. so, someone kind of one of the first field nurses and you know, women as, as field nurses. And Florence Nightingale also was involved in the Crimean War, but mm-hmm. we don't see her. We just get a name check. Correct. Yeah, she is name check. But Miss Seacole, she was actually a Jamaican who uh, wanted to help out uh, as a nurse. She wanted to help out to care for the, 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 the soldiers and built a British hotel. She built like this ramshackle facility to care for soldiers, to provide uh, food and, and drink and so on, to, to provide comfort to soldiers. And, uh, but was rejected by the British army. They actually did not want her there, but she just paid for her own way. She had some help from other people, got there, got some of the locals to help her help build her British hotel that we got to see, uh, mm-hmm. and was very, very influential in actually helping out caring for not just British soldiers. Of course, Crimean war wasn't just Brits. I know French were involved or other, mm-hmm. other, uh, countries that were involved in the Crimean war as well. Uh, but she was very influential in, in you know caring for soldiers behind the lines. Yeah, and I I haven't been able to determine. I don't think she was classically trained in medicine, but she, from what I gather, she practiced kind of folk medicine. So she would like use herbal remedies, correct, to try to help the soldiers. That's that's what I'd read as well. Yeah. So, but it was interesting, you know, to bring this historic figure in. Mm-hmm. I really liked her. She was great. Mm-hmm. Who I didn't like uh, was Lieutenant General Logan. Because whereas Mary Seacole is a competent character who is an agent and doing things and doing good, Lieutenant General Logan is a stereotype. And he just he's the pig headed military guy who is just deluded with dreams of queen and empire and glory. And he's going to face the Suntarans no matter what. And then he gets his butt kicked. And he seems to come around, and then he turns into a villain again, where he blows up the Centaurans, need, even though they're retreating. And even during the period where he seems to be redeemed, he is played as an inferior person. Um, he, he doesn't really become competent. When the doctor is laying out her plan for here's how we're going to get the Centaurans to leave, she's like complimenting Mary Seacall and going, oh, gold star and check mark for you. Take a note, General Logan. And she's like point, poking him with a sharp stick. And he so they're constantly running down Logan. Um, even when he's not being an outright full-blown stereotype, he just 
he shifts from what he in he shifts from being the um un inflexible warrior idiot to being a different to being a sort of chastened warrior idiot to being an outright villain again. And I just, I don't like the way they handled his character. I would have liked to see a more sympathetic portrayal of Logan, mm-hmm. the way we got a sympathetic portrayal of, um, of Mary Seacombe. Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, it was, and you know, the first thing I wrote down is, oh yeah, he's a typical drunk, arrogant general. You know, he thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's the one in charge and all that. But yeah, especially that scene where she's lecturing him. I, I really didn't like that. It just, she, yeah. He, he, had, he could do nothing. She, you know, she kept berating him and it's just, that's not necessary. That really isn't necessary. Yeah. And you're right. The doctor is lecturing them, not just in the typical sense in which the doctor lectures people. She is literally conducting a lecture yep. with a, like a, a blackboard and a, and a pointer. And it is a literal lecture. Exactly. And that, that was, and I, I mean, part of that was kind of cute, but part of it was just kind of like, why, why did he, you know, even when he tried to respond, she's like, no, nope, you're wrong. You know, next. Yeah. Move on. So I, I, that was however, you know, he he did kind of in a way bring it on himself, sort of only because, you know, the doctor tries does the parley with Commander Skak and uh, she starts on the, you know, this planet is protected and you will not win as long as I am here. And I speak for all Earth. And of course, he immediately the, the general immediately pulls a gun and. You don't speak nope. for us, and you know, let's yeah. now we're going to fight. And and that was fine, but this guy rose to be a general because he had some ability, mm-hmm. and he doesn't get to show any of that ability. Even he only gets to show ability at the very end, right? When he's being a villain again, he he doesn't get to show any ability when he's working for good, right? And I've got a little complaint about the the end, but we'll get to that when we get to the end. So, uh-huh. uh, one thing I like is you know the doctor tricks the uh Svild to um reveal where their base is and of course she follows and there's a holographic shield that mary sequel she's like he just disappeared it's like no not really it's a it's a shield it's just a hologram but mary sequel's sitting there she's writing down the 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 movements of the santarans she the doctor leaves her there to to track them because that's one of one of her skills is kind of watching how people move and they're they're uh observing the conditions of the of the army. She's a spy. She's a spy. Yeah. And she did, you know, very good job. And you notice that the Centaurans have to refill their suits every 27 hours. Takes them seven and a half minutes to refill their suits every 27 hours. And stupidly, they've all coincided their They've synchronized their suit refills. So right. that makes them all vulnerable for that period, which of course the doctor takes advantage of gets, gets the general. And surprisingly, he help, he agrees to help out uh, with his, some of his troops to, Basically, I, I, I'd written down poison, but actually basically drain their resupply lines. You know, they have to they get these chemicals and nutrients through this this gas. She drains their lines she, so that they can't. And that's an interesting addition to the mythology of the Centaurans that they um, that that's where they why they wear their suits on Earth. It's not mm-hmm. simply for armor like we'd always probably assumed. It's right. because they're also in environment suits that are compensating for the difference between Santar and earth. By the way, I I liked um, when they found the um, hologram cliff face, Mm -hmm. which reminded me of the duck blinds you'd see in next generation. Oh, sure. Um, But when the doctor sticks her hand through, we get this POV shot from within the duck blind 
looking out at them through right. a kind of hologram effect. And Mary Seacall's way of understanding this is to say, oh, it's a conjuring trick. Mm-hmm. And the doctor says, basically, yeah. And I, I like that. <laughs> that was a nice 19th century way of, of comprehending what this was. Yeah. A technolo- technological conjuring trick is a good way to put it. Of course, you know, it shows the arrogance of the Santarans. You know, you've got this this point where someone can walk in where you can see them, but they can't see you. And they don't put a guard there. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> as the doctor points out, the Centaurans aren't really that intelligent. Exactly. Exactly. Now, with, with the, 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 the probic vents, you know, I, I thought they've always kind of explained that as a filter for Earth's atmosphere. Because I know, wasn't, wasn't there, a, um, wasn't it, uh, what storyline was that? The, or the, the uh, Atmos where that the purpose of the Atmos uh, add-ons to the cars in the Tenth Doctor's era was to turn oh, yeah. Earth into the, the atmosphere that the Santarans needed. So at least that's where New is concerned that we've known that Santar is the atmosphere is different than Earth's. Yes, yeah, and they so the probic vents are the points on the back of their necks where they have a little device that. In in classic Who, I don't know if its function was really explained, but mm-hmm. it is their vulnerable point. Right. It's it's their Achilles neck. Yeah. And which... so if you hit him there and we get um, we get some nice stuff in the 21st century where Dan is handed a frying pan, which is a wok that right. his his mom owns. And <laughs> and he he apparently some drunk guy in 21st century Liverpool hit them there with uh with with something and they fell over unconscious and so that's how humans learned that they were vulnerable there and so now dan has is running around with Chekhov's frying pan yeah and you know at some people he's at some point he's going to have to use it which he does um we also get a lot of walk jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it when, so we meet Dan's parents yeah. and his dad, when Dan is about to infiltrate the Santaran base, you have this solemn moment and normally it would be a gun, mm-hmm. but instead he's handing over the frying pan and yeah. it's like, take this son in case you need it. And I really liked that. That you was know, fun. I, I liked Dan's parents, you know, and this, this is one thing that is, you know, we've complained before about how parents are portrayed in new who, and here you've got, Dan has got a great, obviously got a good relationship with his parents and his mm-hmm. parents obviously have a good relationship. Yeah. They, you know, they, they grouch at each other, but they seem to have a good relationship all around. The family seems to have a good relationship and that, I hate to say it has been pretty rare in New Who. Yeah, it it is nice to see it here. Um, a couple more things in the in the Crimean that we get to see when um, Dan Starkey's character Svild is, goes back to his commander to ask for uh, to let him know that the doctor is there and he has this informant that wants a parlay about where the doctor is, not realizing it's the doctor herself. Um, he is told by his commander that you have performed adequately and and the reason he's he's saying it that way is because this guy got injured and captured which is like the greatest shame and so he doesn't want to compliment him um and uh svild then asks for mercy by which he means he wants to be killed right now he wants a mercy killing and which then happens and so uh, we we see that. Um, interestingly, now up to now, 
in the episode, we've been hearing the Santarans use their battle cry, Santar Ha, mm-hmm. a lot. And that's something that knew who introduced a number of seasons ago. But then when um, when they're going to have the mercy killing on Sfield, the commander says Santar Ho. And Dan Starkey then also says Santar Ho immediately before he's killed. So apparently this is an alternative to the battle cry that means something a little different. I'm not sure what, but it was interesting. Yeah, like a a defeat acknowledgement or... Or something, you know, some kind of something. It, it's it's yeah. the negative form, maybe, of of Santar Ha. Yeah, it, it was that was kind of an interesting twist to it, you know. It, and again, this is all part of you know making the, the Santarans much more dramatic characters. They aren't just the the, the potato head clowns like they've been portrayed for so much of. Dr. Now Ooh. they're the dangerous potato head clowns. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We also get to see a new psychic power from the Doctor. In this episode, Mm. Um, at one point after she's realized that General Logan is not going to cooperate with her and she's going to need to take things into her own hands, she turns to an ordinary soldier um, and takes out the pinky of her right hand and jams it up under his chin Mm -hmm. and puts him to sleep for six hours. And so she apparently has this psychic pinky finger poke that she can do. Yeah, I I didn't know if it was supposed to be psychic or it was supposed to be more like Venusian karate or something like that, you know, because John Pertwee would do something like that, too, where he could paralyze someone with two fingers. Yeah, I I mean, you may be right. It may be mar- a martial art. I took it as psychic. I thought there was a little audio effect could be that that was communicating. It was more than just physical, but I could be mistaken on that. Yeah, I, I couldn't miss that, too. But still, it was it was kind of int- yeah, it's something we hadn't seen before. Yeah, there we also have an, another literary illusion in the Crimean sequence where um, Mary Seacole turns to the doctor in a desperate moment and says, what are we going to do or where are we going to go? And the doctor says, half a league onward. Mm. And that's an allusion to the famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, right. which is set in the Crimean War. And is about to uh, the line, the fuller line in the poem is like half a league, half a league, half a league onward. And it's about this doomed light brigade. Mm-hmm. And so for the doctor to invoke that is very ominous. Well, um, when Lieutenant General introduced the Lieutenant General introduced himself as in the commander of the light brigade. So that's there's that connection. Uh huh. Also, in case you're wondering, half a league is one point seven three miles. OK. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's that's one of those uh, measurements we don't really use, you know, kind of like furlongs for racing, you know, same kind of deal. Yeah. Also, in the Crimean sequence, the doctor uses a uh, Sontaran's probic vent to take him down after she and uh, Mary Seacole have boarded a Sontaran starship uh, The do- in the Crimean War. Uh, the doctor uses a slingshot. Mm hmm to propel something and ding a Suntaran from behind on his probic vent, taking him down. And when I saw the doctor do that, I thought, I know I've seen this imagery before on Doctor Who. Where have I seen this? I thought that the second doctor might have used a slingshot at some point, but I don't believe so. I yeah. think the doctors, either the second or the fourth, has pulled a slingshot out of his pocket at one oh, yeah. time. But it was actually, I think, Ace taking down mm-hmm. a Cyberman 
that uh, a Cyberman. That was what I was thinking of primarily. Also, I believe Rory, I looked it up and like not only did Ace use a slingshot on a Cyberman, but Rory used a slingshot once, too. Right. Um, but it was interesting to see the slingshot as well. And so the doctor was while um, while Dan was using Chekhov's frying pan, the doctor was using a slingshot to do the same thing. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, the slingshots. One of those things where, you know, the doctor has to empty his pockets and there's a yo yo and an half even apple or something like that. And the slingshot and, you know, stuff kind of the, especially in the fourth doctor, that was kind of a regular sight gag of how many things can he actually fit in his pockets as he goes yeah. along and yeah you're you're right a yo-yo yeah I, I, or not a yo-yo but a slingshot but yeah i don't remember the doctor ever actually using one oh funny mm-hmm. that she's interested in using that kind of weapon just not a gun oh well yeah. um i liked in so there's this great sequence where dan we're in parallel time tracks in the 21st mm-hmm. century dan has infiltrated a suntaran ship and in the 19th century the doctor has infiltrated a suntaran ship and dan has been like taking uh, a record of what he's doing with his phone. He's mm-hmm. like filming himself as a message for the doctor. And I don't know that he knows how he's going to get this message to the doctor, but um, he ends up pressing buttons on the Centauran ship in the 21st century and activates it, whatever circuits allow it to communicate with the temporal incursion into the 19th century. So we get this sequence with the doctor and Dan being able to talk to each other over a screen for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And Dan is confused. Uh, he's he's talking about how the Centaurans have invaded. And he says they have this obsession with Japanese food. They mm-hmm. keep talking about tempura command and tempura incursion. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and. And the doctor helps him figure out that's temporal mm-hmm. command and temporal incursion. Uh, but he keeps up the uh, the food yep. with the food jokes because he then um, uh, knocks a Centauran out and refers to it as pan fried Centauran. Yep. And then he says, and I'm just going to walk right out of here. Yep. Yeah. He, he definitely get the, the, the puns in. But he, and, and it's interesting, though, for, for someone who is very new with traveling with the doctor, very new with, with dealing with things like alien incursions and stuff like that. He's pretty sharp. I mean, he, he's, he's figuring things out pretty quick. Well, actually I, yeah, I have a little too quick. I have in my notes, Dan clearly seems to have experience with situations like this. He mm-hmm. is way too functional, way too fast. If he was a total noob. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that that line from episode one about, yeah, I used to have a friend with one of these Tardises. Mm. Um, may not have just been a joke. I suspect he's he's been in situations like this before, gonna, but we'll have to see. Yeah, we're going to find out more as we we go along. But it, it's it's interesting to watch him. Um, and of course, right right after he said does the line about the walk, you know, I'm going to walk out of here, and then he opens the door, and there's a bunch of Centaurans ready to to shoot him, which they don't get the chance to thanks to a friendly dog, not so friendly dog. Yeah, Carvanista shows up at that moment with the wonderful line, I've still got a human in this fight. Yeah. <laughs> in, instead of, I've still got a dog in, uh, I have a dog in this fight. Yep. Um, and Carvanista bails Dan out and then reveals a plan for here's how we're going to destroy the ships in the 21st century. We're going to pilot one of them to fly into the others. Mm-hmm. And Dan then says, um, you know, hello, we're on the ship. 
that yep. you're flying. And he says, well, we there's this escape tube or whatever, uh, which turns out to be part of the plumbing system. And he throws Dan into the escape tube. Yep. And then and and then he jumps in himself. And as we see them rushing towards the camera with the elements of the tube flying past them, um, Dan is screaming and Carvanista is howling. Yeah, <laughs> which was which was really nice. Yeah, there's some they're pretty good uh, effects um, with Carvanista. Like they get they, they end up falling into the, the, the water, the Mersey River. And uh, as they're coming out, you know, they're soaked and Carvanista shakes like a dog does. And yes, gets that sprayed. was great. That was yeah. such a great effect. Um, by the way, you know, talked last uh, last episode about, you know, how much of Carvanista's uh, effects are they practical? Are they actual uh, actual um, cosmetics or are they uh, CGI? And there's a video on YouTube from the, the official Doctor Who site where you can see some of the behind the scenes where they, you know, another camera as they're filming scenes. And a lot of that is uh, cosmetic. That's a lot of that is prosthetic. A lot of the, mm-hmm. the fur effects. I mean, there's there are some of it that you can tell that they do a little CGI, like ears perking up and things like that. But as far as like his facial expressions, a lot of that is practical. Yeah, I and that's what I had assumed. It looks like practical makeup to me. Um, one thing that I was glad to see clarified in a behind the scenes video that I watched is I had commented last time about how I didn't I didn't know whether it was in the script or not. But like when Carvanista realizes his Jedi mind trick device that he has mm-hmm. on his wrist is not working. He sniffs it to yep. see why is it not working. And I saw an interview or a clip with the actor where he was saying that that was his idea, that he asked the producers, like, if I'm a dog, can I like sniff things and can I tilt my head, you know, cock mm-hmm. my head to one side the way dogs do when they're when they're thinking about something or listening to what a human is saying. And so he introduced those. And then this time we get the the really nice shake after they come out of the river. That was, that was great. Yeah. You, you see the water, you know, he's shaking the water's coming off him. Then it turns to Dan. And he's just getting sprayed like which, yeah. you know, if, if you've ever had a dog come out of the river, you know exactly what that's like, you know. They they uh, they're pretty good about spraying you when they're they're wet. Um, mm-hmm. Now they they uh, they kind of do you know a time hand wave over the the fleet on Earth because it does a basically a temporal bang is how Carvanista puts it. You know when the ships collide, they end up wiping out all the Santarans on Earth because of time incursion or however you want to put it. Hmm. So they, I, I I I don't know that I got that. I got just got the idea that okay they. The, the, these are the ships they're about to launch into the past. The mm-hmm. only one so far that's actually gone into the past is the one for the, is the set for the Crimean right. War. And so the doctor has taken care of the ones in the Crimean War and Carvanista and Dan then take really Carvanista mm-hmm. take care of the ones in the 21st century. So there will be no more invasions. Well, and the the uh, they had said that the the Santarans had co- had conquered all of Earth. Oh yes, okay, you're right, you're right. And then mm-hmm. when the doctors there, oh, you got rid of all the Santarans, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, uh, you know, it was one of kind of those time hand wavy things of now all of a sudden they're all gone because time temporal bang and yeah, and that's something they didn't really need to do. It's because we didn't even see anywhere other than Liverpool conquered. It could have been purely Liverpool mm-hmm. as their foothold, and then you know if you, so you're you're just telling me about stuff off screen, and then now you're telling me that the stuff off screen off screen has been taken care of. You could have just left the stuff off screen out altogether, right? Yeah, because these when uh, 
Dan met up with his parents. They said that they got the foothold in Liverpool and then like within six hours had conquered the entire Earth, which is reasonable, I guess, depending on how many millions of Suntarns invade. But still, um, you know, by the way, they snuck in like at the last second before the Lupari shield took hold. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they got millions of Suntarans through in like a blink of an eye and nobody noticed until it was too late, apparently. Yeah. They said something about a three minute eclipse occurring. Right. And it wasn't entirely clear to me what they meant by that, because I think that the Lupari ships are still up there. At first, mm-hmm. I thought that it meant the three minute eclipse was like the Lupari were up there for three minutes and it blocked out the sun. Right. But I think the Lupari are still up there. That's why it's still dark. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's one thing. Um, that's one thing uh, Carvanista said is that they're going to remain around the Earth protecting the planet, you know, so that they're they're still there. So at least. Um, yeah. So that again, that presumes that they're still still there. This is kind of mm-hmm. where I, you know, kind of have a little bit of grumble about the kind of little bit of the 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 the, the two endings of the the Suntar fleets, you know, so you mm-hmm. had the of course, the general blows up the Suntar fleet and the doctor reads him the riot act about their retreating and everything, which by the way, the Suntar Suntarans didn't say they were retreating. They're doing a strategic withdrawal. What do mm-hmm. armies do when they do strategic withdrawals? They regroup and come back. Exactly. And he said, he, the, the Skak said, I'm coming back. And doctor said, not while I'm here. It's like, well, you're not going to be there. You're going to want to get back and find your companions again. And sure enough, she did. In, in one thing in uh, General Logan's favor is we've seen this situation before back in the third doctor's time. Mm-hmm. There were times where the brigadier would destroy uh, enemies uh, over the doctor's wishes, like right. the um, the Silurians the first time mm-hmm. they appeared. Yep, exactly. So, uh, you know, but it, she's criticizing General Logan, but then she praised Dan and Carvanista for completely wiping you know, millions of Santarans and their fleet from history. Just they're gone. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. The doctor is very, very inconsistent about um, this whole death thing. Mm-hmm. At least though, we didn't have with, with for the vast majority of the episode, it just moved and there was not a lot of moralizing. Yeah. And so, you know, there I mean, there are there's obviously a moral dimension to things that are going on. And you can tell that the doctor doesn't approve of uh, the general when he's when he's um, planning battle actively with the Centaur. And she thinks that's really dumb. But at least we're not getting constant lectures about this stuff, which I thought was refreshing. Yeah. I mean, this is one little one little niggle I have with this episode. This is my one little complaint with it is this this contrast between how she treated the general for for blowing up the fleet that would come back and for for dan for completely wiping out of history by blowing up the fleet you uh-huh. know so i mean again that's that's pretty minor otherwise this has been a good episode so now with all this done the two fleets are 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 gone uh the doctor has gotten the tardis to modern day liverpool and dan jumps in and they get hijacked yeah and, and, the, tar- to- and the tardis is really visibly worse this time yep than it was last time. It's like got all it's the interior console room is severely degraded Mm -hmm. and they do get hijacked. And the doctor also at one point says to the TARDIS, what's going on with you? Yeah. So clearly the doctor does not know what's why the TARDIS is breaking down. And so now this, this takes us to the the third uh, time area, the third thread that we haven't really talked about. And that's the temple of Atropos on the planet time. 
Yeah. So if that name is familiar to anybody, Atropos is from Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And so are the the Moirai, as you would more properly pronounce it. The Moirai are the Greek goddesses of fate and destiny. So they're the fates. And um, Atropos is one of the three fates. Uh, Her sisters are Clotho and Lachesis. And Atropos's name means inflexible or unalterable. Mm. And her function among the fates is to render the decisions of her sister fates immutable and unchangeable. And so that's why she's called inflexible. Um, so this is the temple of Atropos, which apparently has something to do with enforcing time and the proper flow of time in the universe. It originally so and presumably the planet is called time because of the role it has in time. Yeah. Um, when the doctor gets there, she says she's got a reading on the sonic that says the space-time coordinates are set to zero, which is impossible. And that could mean that the planet time is in a pocket dimension or outside of our regular universe, or it could mean it's at the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. But um, but apparently it's responsible for the proper flow of time, and the Moirai are, or Morai as they say it in this episode, are, there's more than three of them. There's some I didn't count exactly, but there's something like seven to nine of them. Yeah, something like that. And two of them have died for reasons unknown. And so they have these little upside down sort of flying diamond droids Mm -hmm. um, that are referred to in the credits as triangle priests. Yep. And so they're the priests of the temple. And they're when at first we see vendors show up and a triangle priest comes up to him and says, can you repair? And, and it, it's obviously concerned about the two Moirai who have died. He wants mm-hmm. the system to be repaired, but vendor doesn't know what he's talking about. And then we see Yaz show up. And the first person she meets is Joseph Williamson, mm-hmm. the guy from 19th century Liverpool, who is only in this episode briefly, just to remind us that he's part of the story. So we won't freak out and go, who's that when he shows up again? <laughs> um, but he's, he's there just briefly. And then Yaz meets vendor uh, having been brought again by a triangle priest who wants to know if she can repair. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we learn about Yaz is she's got a little thing that she's written on her hand and apparently mm-hmm. has it there all the time. She either doesn't wash her hands very often yeah. or she, she rewrites this message a lot, but it's WWTDD. Yep. And for American Christians, that's going to be immediately transparent, at least yep. for many of them, as her version of what would Jesus do, WWJD. Yep. And um, and so for her, it's what would the doctor do? Exactly. And that is, on the one hand, it's not a bad piece of advice to keep in mind, or it's not a bad question to ask yourself if you're a doctor companion. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it, it, it underscores the, the messianicness of the figure of the doctor. Yeah. And I can see people having different feelings about that. Yeah. And well, and it's, let's be honest, sometimes the best thing to do might not be what the doctor does, at least if you want to survive. 
Well, true. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes the doctor does things that might not always be the best. Mm-hmm. But so while uh, Vinder and Yaz are trying to figure out what's going on uh, with the Mori, uh, we have three new people show up, two we've met before. We have Azure or Azure, as they pronounce it, Swarm, and a new person, Passenger, that we've not met before yet. Yeah. And Passenger looks. He looks more like Thanos in the comic books than he does mm. Thanos in the movies, but he's kind of like Thanos. He's except he's like got a completely, you know, jet black head. Yep. yep. But we find out that uh, Azure and, and Swarm had been there before, that they'd been mm-hmm. to the temple, that uh, the reason why we can't you can't see the Mori until someone steps on the platform is they're quantum locked against Azure and Swarm, but then with uh, Vinder and Yaz there, that it breaks that so that they can do whatever they're going to do. Yeah, and uh, and at first the Triangle Priests don't recognize uh, Azure and Swarm, mm-hmm. um, and they're asking them if they can repair. And whereas we've seen Vinder and Yaz re- be asked that same question and not know what it means. Mm-hmm. As soon as Azure and Swarm get asked, can you repair? They both say, oh, yes. Yep. So they clearly have a lot of knowledge about what's going on here. And they've been here before. And eventually the Triangle Priests recognize who they are mm-hmm. and say that this has been forbidden to them, that their person's forbidden here. Yep. And so they've apparently done something here before that was presumably bad. Mm-hmm. And I guess they're here to do something like it again. Yeah. Um, but the doctor, when when Swarm has brought her and Dan here, um, Swarm is talking to her and says that uh, that because of the injury that's been done to the Morai here, which he doesn't seem to have done, at least that hasn't been revealed, mm-hmm. um, time is starting to run wild. And so he's put in a temporary fix, and then he reveals that he's got Yaz and Vinder in the place of two of the Morai. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting because originally there were only two dead Morai. Mm-hmm. And the others were still alive. They were just standing there, but they were still alive. But then Swarm destroyed one of them, at least one of them. Right. So I don't know if the Morai are still down or if they have the number they need. Yeah, I, I thought I was trying to figure out because the ones that were dead, they were kind of like flickering in and out of existence. It was they were there and then they were then they were dead. And and I don't know if he destroyed one of the the, the two that had I missed to see for sure if he had destroyed the two that had died or no, it was like a new one yeah, it, it was a perfectly fine one that was just standing there and he disintegrated her yeah that, that's, that's i couldn't quite quite tell for sure so yeah that was uh kind of a interesting that now they're down four instead of two and you know what's that doing with time of course it, you know and is it is it swarm's intention to um to destroy time is that's what he's trying to do. And that's, you know, let time run wild because that's what they say. The more we do is they control time. They keep time from running wild. It's evil as the, the, the temple uh, priest. Yeah. Thing triangle thing that says they also, um, they also at one point in this sequence refer to who may have set up the temple and mm-hmm. given it this authority. And the answer comes back. It's unknown. Yep. So it's like, duh, it's Gallifrey. It's the Time Lords or, you know, someone connected with them. 
Well, and we, we've had hints so far in the season of, of you know, the, the timeless child. So does this does this have something to do with that as well? Yeah. Also, Vendor has referred to my home planet without naming it. And right. get, based on the way he the way his costume looks, I'm mm-hmm. thinking he's a Time Lord, too. He might be one of the Time Lord guards or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least he's Gallifreyan, if not a Time yep. Lord. One of the things that really I thought was very effective in the uh, Planet of Time sequence is when um, when Swarm and Passenger and Azure have shown up and Swarm is threatening Yaz, Mm -hmm. Vendor pulls a gun. And so he's got he's got a blaster and he shoots at um, at at Swarm, who immediately teleports across the room. Mm-hmm. It's just instantaneous. The shot goes and and um, and Swarm is somewhere else. And Swarm starts playing a game oh, yeah. with him where we have this shooty teleport game happening where he's daring him to shoot him. And every time he shoots, instantly Swarm is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then Azure wants to get on it in on it too and she says like oh do me and vendor shoots her and of course instantly she's teleported away and she jumps several times and then finally she jumps right behind yaz and 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 vendor is swinging his arm and turning you know to keep up with her and shooting as fast as he can and when she teleports behind yaz he's got to stop himself instantly or Mm -hmm. he'll shoot yaz yeah. And I thought that was very effectively played. And the timing in that was really great. Yeah, it was. And, and Swarm was a lot of fun because, you know, at one point he's literally like leaning on a pedestal, you know, got his arms crossed, just kind of leaning on a pedestal or on a, uh, yeah, just kind of relaxed, you know. But he just snaps right to that, you know. And he's kind of mocking him as he's jumping too, you know. Yeah. Kinda, it, was, it, was, it was a kind of an interesting scene. Very, very well done. Now, what would be an interesting variant on that is a um, you have a teleport game, a shooty teleport game like this being played. And at some point, the person being shot at compares the shooter, who is actually a very good marksman, to a stormtrooper. Yeah, that would have been kind (laughs) of an interesting catch. Yeah. (laughs) So is there anything else, Jimmy, you want to mention about this episode? I just wanted to mentioned the very first thing we see in it, which isn't really connected to the plot, mm-hmm. at least yet. Um, when the doctor wakes up, uh, she is standing in black and white. So yeah. we have this black and white effect, which could mean a number of things. Um, this could be a vision. It could be a memory. It could be both. But it was great to see the doctor in black and white again. Mm-hmm. And she's standing in this forest, sort of forest, and in front of her is a crooked house. Um, there's a, there's a, you know, there was a crooked man who built a crooked house yep. and so forth. And there's this crooked house in front of her. It is weird. It is like several different houses, wooden houses stitched onto each other, old fashioned wooden houses oh, yeah. stitched onto each other at crazy angles. And it's floating above the ground and it looks partly smashed. Mm-hmm. And she starts to reach out to it. And that's when the memory or dream or vision ends. And she's, on the ground in Crimea. Right. And so obviously we're not, this is not explored any further in this episode, exactly what this is. It's certain to come back 
and be explored in the next four episodes because you don't spend money on a sequence like that without having a payoff for it. So it's clearly setting something up. I don't know what this house is. I think it's either something from her past. It may be something from her past, or it may be a visualization of the TARDIS, of the TARDIS in its broken state. Mm -hmm. That very well could be. Yeah, this is, it was kind of an interesting scene and you know, the episode started out really interesting, too, because it started out black with three chimes of the cloister bell before yeah. she has this vision. So it was very, you know, kind of that. Yeah. So it, it does set up, you know, is this a vision? Is this something she's remembering? It'll, it'll be interesting to see how they, they play that out. Well, but that's all I had. Well, very good. Well, that's I think then this would be a good time to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Maria N., Patricia R., Ron S., Ryan W., and Marion M., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows here at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. That's it from us. What did you think of War of the Suntarns? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send us an email at doctorwho at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next chapter once upon a once upon time, I was gonna say once upon a time, but that's not it. It's once upon time. Till then, Jimmy Aiken, thanks for joining me in the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Father Corey. And once again, I'm Father Corey Stika. Thank you to listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, it was really, it was pretty easy. Really, I worked it out all by myself. Till Scooby Doo here tried to take all the credit. Right, this is gonna be fun.